We're looking at Psalm 127 this afternoon. So let's turn there, Psalm 127, begin with a reading of it. A song of ascents of Solomon, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Uh, Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this psalm is one of two by Solomon, so far as we know anyway, in the book of Psalms. The other one by Solomon is Psalm 72, and it's very appropriate that that psalm should be of Solomon because It's a psalm that celebrates the peace and prosperity of the uh, reign of Messiah. And of course, Solomon was a type of the Messiah, especially as the Messiah as the Prince of Peace. But it's also very appropriate that this psalm, 127, should be a psalm of Solomon. Matthew Henry points out that the theme of uh, of this psalm is very similar to the theme of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. And the conclusion of the whole matter is in the last few verses of that book uh, that we should fear God and keep his commandments. And uh, this is what we have in the psalm here as well. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. One of the questions that we might well ask about this psalm is why... uh, And the next one, for that matter, is why should these two psalms be found in the Psalms of Ascents? If the Psalms of Ascents were songs sung by the pilgrims, especially, not only at that time, but especially by the pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem for the pilgrim feasts, for the great feast days of the people of Israel, why should Uh, these two psalms be included, psalms which are really uh, uh, revolving around the idea of covenant families. And I think we can get a hint of that in a couple of passages in the uh, scriptures. This first would be Psalm 42. Psalm 42, as the people of God go up to Jerusalem, this is what The sons of Korah say in that psalm, When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. And so you get a picture there of a large group of people traveling on the way to Jerusalem for one of these great feast days. And among that crowd of people would undoubtedly be many children. So the presence of the children there would remind the pilgrims of the blessing of pilgrims. You get another uh, little glimpse of this, I think, in Luke chapter 2, as uh, Joseph and Mary are returning from celebrating the feast of the Passover in Jerusalem. 
And you read there in verses uh, 43 and 44 of Luke 2, when they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not, and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So again, you get the picture of a rather large group of people leaving Jerusalem after the feast is over, and uh, enough uh, people in the company so that Mary and Joseph uh, think, without actually having seen him, that Jesus is somewhere in that company. Uh, That's certainly, I think, um, a possibility anyway, as we consider this some, that the the pilgrims are celebrating uh, the fact of the blessing of children given to them by God as they go up to Jerusalem with those children to observe the great feasts. Let's uh, look at the psalm under the theme, unless the Lord builds the house, and what we're going to do is divide the psalm into two parts. First, we're going to look at the vanity of building without the Lord in verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to look at the house that the Lord builds in verses 3 to 5. Now that first part of the psalm, the first two verses of the psalm, mention three things. The first thing those verses mention is building a house. Now you could take that to mean simply the constructing of a dwelling place. But I don't think that's what Solomon had in mind, or the only thing that Solomon had in mind. I think what Solomon had in mind here when he talked about building a house was establishing and maintaining a family, a household, within the nation of Israel. And so there would be included in this building of a house, not only the construction of a dwelling place, but also marrying and bearing children and hiring or purchasing servants, uh, caring for the fields, supplanting and harvesting, uh, caring for the animals that belong to the farm, and doing all this different work that goes into the maintenance of a household. That's what he means, I think, by building a house here. And of course, within the nation of Israel, this building of a house would be viewed as a very spiritual work. And so there would be included in this building of the house, the training of the children and the nurture and admonition of the Lord, the guiding of the servants and the teaching of the servants, the Lord's ways, the keeping of the Sabbath, the offering of tithes and sacrifices, the going to the feast days of Israel and all the religious exercises that God required of his people. That would be the all part of this building the house. It would be uh, considered a a matter of building a godly house. And that, I think, is what Solomon has in mind here. You could certainly say, of course, that unless the Lord builds the house, that is, constructs the dwelling, unless the Lord is with you in that, you construct a dwelling also in vain. But I think Solomon's view here is much broader than that. And he's talking about the whole work of uh, building and maintaining a godly household. And I think the same then applies to the second thing that Solomon uh, mentions here, and that is, of course, the guarding of the city. The city is here seen particularly as a place of refuge from enemies. 
talks about guarding the city, and that's the only thing he has to say about the city. He doesn't talk about it as a place of commerce or anything like that. He's interested in it here only as a place of refuge, where all the people of uh, the surrounding area would gather and uh, shelter if some enemy were invading the land. And, of course, the guarding of the city, then, means the whole work of maintaining the defenses of the city, maintaining the walls, setting watchmen on the walls in order to warn the people of of, uh, enemies who are on the way, and the whole work, then, of defending the city against enemies, enemies who might come from within or enemies who might come from without. It didn't really matter. The uh, whole matter of defending one's own hometown, one's own city. And this too would be seen, of course, as a very spiritual work. The uh, land was the inheritance that God had given them. The city was one of the cities that God had taken from the nations around them and, and given into the hands of his people or that they had built up in the, in the land under the blessing of of God. They were then defending the inheritance of the Lord, the inheritance that the Lord had given them, and defending their place and their part in the kingdom of God and in his, among his people. So this psalm transfers very readily then, I think, to uh, our New Testament times. We're talking here in the psalm about uh, Christian parents seeking to establish a godly household, establish and maintain a godly household, and we're talking about the people of God uh, defending and um, building up the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the, the basic two ideas that are here in this first part of the psalm. Establishing a Christian household in the midst of the world and defending the church of God against enemies, both within and without. And then the third thing that Solomon mentions here is labor. And I think what he has in mind is not some separate thing, but all the labor that one does as one works at these two great tasks, building a house and guarding the city. This labor, then, we can say, I think, really three things about it. First of all, certainly Solomon has in mind here, and and this is probably the most prominent thing that he has in mind, is the diligence with which one is applying himself to that labor. It is vain, he says, for you to rise up early, to sit up late. In other words, you're getting up before the sun rises, and you're uh, sitting up long after the sun goes down because of the amount of work which you have to do and the uh, strenuousness of the labor in these two great tasks that God has given you. You are rising early, you are sitting up late. Actually, it says in the Hebrew, sitting down late, and probably has the idea of sitting down late for a meal, not having time then during the day to eat one's meal, but waiting until the work is all done at the end of the day, and finally then sitting down to eat. And then that carries right over then to the next line, to eat the bread of sorrows. 
And this can suggest, I think, two different things. First of all, it it suggests that one is sitting down not to enjoy uh, a great feast and to relax for uh, a, a significant period of time at the end of the day, but one is now weary, uh, bedtime is near, there's no time to take uh, a, a leisurely meal. One has to eat the bread of sorrows, one has to eat quickly and be done with it because the work has consumed so much of one's time during the day. And the other possibility that that phrase suggests is that there's a kind of anxiety here in this, that one may even be depriving himself of luxuries and food, may be uh, cutting back on uh, expenses in this area in order to uh, maintain the prosperity and advance the prosperity of the household. It's a kind of suggestion of the anxiety that goes into these labors, I think. So the weariness and the anxiety of, of the labor, as well as the diligence that goes into the labor. In fact, this anxiety may go so far, it's suggested in the last line of the verse, that the anxiety may be troubling his sleep. He cannot lay down his cares at the end of the day and go to sleep, but the anxiety spills over into the night hours, and he lies wakeful upon his bed, thinking anxiously, about the work that remains undone and the problems still to be dealt with. Now, what Solomon says then about all this is, it is vain. It is vain to build your house, vain to be engaged in all this labor this marrying and this bearing of children and this training the children and the purchasing and hiring and guiding of servants and all the labor in the fields and with the animals and and all the business of the household. It is vain. And it's also vain for you to guard the city. Vain to set a watchman on the walls who will warn you of enemies to come because the enemies are going to come and overwhelm you. Everything is going to come to nothing. Everything will be useless. All your labor will be futile. It will all be in vain unless it has the Lord's blessing. Unless the Lord builds the house. Unless the Lord guards the city. It is all in vain. Now certainly Solomon does not mean to suggest here, people of God, that what we should do instead of this diligent labor which he is uh, describing in the first two verses is leave it all to the Lord and say, I don't need to do anything. The Lord will take care of it. The Lord will build the house. The Lord will guard the city. I don't need to set watchmen. I don't need to go to the effort of building a house. It's all in the Lord's hands. It's not for me to do. He will take care of it. That's what we call antinomianism today. It does not mean that the Lord will accomplish these things apart from us, but that the Lord rather will accomplish them through us. 
we become in this trusting labor in the Lord. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, God's fellow workers or God's co-workers. And so we do our diligent labor. We build our house. We guard our city. We apply ourselves with strenuous labor to the tasks that God has given us to do, but always, always in dependence on Him, always seeking His blessing, always recognizing that the prosperity and fruit of our labors must be given to us by Him, and always acknowledging that whatever prosperity and success our labors have comes not by our efforts, not by our goodness, but by the grace and blessing of God on us. Then our labor is not in vain. When he blesses it, and when he gives according to his eternal purpose, prosperity and success. That prosperity and that success may not be what we expected. It may not be even according to our desires. For his purposes do not always coincide with our desires. When we labor in the fear of his name, trusting him, and accrediting all success and prosperity to him, then our labor is not in vain. We labor then acknowledging his sovereignty, not taking credit for ourselves, for the prosperity of our work, but acknowledging that he has blessed us with whatever success is given. I think that's the message of the first part of the psalm. And of course, as we take that message, we apply it to our labor and our families the church's labor with the families and the children that belong to it, and with our guarding and defending of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's vain for you to build the house. It's vain for you to guard the city. It's vain for you to rise up early and sit up late, unless the Lord bless your labors. Let's look then at the second part of the psalm under the heading, The House That the Lord Builds. I think what we should see here, first of all, in verses 3 to 5, is that these three verses return, really, to the ideas that are expressed in the first two verses. When Solomon talks about children in verses 3 and 4, He's going back to that building the house that he mentions in verse 1. This is the primary way that the Lord builds our house. The house of his church, the house of his covenant families through children. Not the only way. In fact, for some, he gives no children at all. But the primary way that he builds his house and that he builds the covenant family is through children. And so Solomon's taking us back to that first idea. And then, of course, when he talks about arrows in the hand of a mighty man, and when he talks about the uh, sitting in the gates of the city, 
He's going back to that guarding the city of verse uh, 1b, the second part of that verse. But notice here, too, that he connects these two ideas, the building of the house and the guarding of the city. And he connects them by means of the children, for the children with whom the Lord blesses the house become the guardians of the city. And so we see the building of the house and we see the defense of the city happening in the children. And and the picture we should get then is this uh, a picture of the generational work of building the house, building the godly families, and building the church of God as fathers and mothers pass on to their children the tasks which they have assumed in becoming Christians. And the children then take up those tasks, the godly children take up those tasks of building the house and guarding the city as their parents especially can no longer do that work and pass to their eternal homes. So it's by means then of these faithful children that we see these tasks carried on in the generation that follows. The whole psalm then is is, uh, rooted in the covenant promises of God. I will be your God and the God of your children after you. And we see that covenantal work of God going on from generation to generation among the people of God and celebrate that covenantal work of God here in this psalm. So let's look then at the Uh, what he says about the children in those uh, three verses. First of all, he he speaks of them as being a heritage and a reward. He uses those two terms. Now the term heritage, first of all, we should notice, and the term reward as well, implies that children are a gift of God. They come to us from him. They are his gift to us. And they are not a gift given to us, of course, absolutely. He does not say to us, here are the children I've chosen to give you, and now they're yours, absolutely. I have nothing more to do with them. They are his children. And he says to us, they are my children, whom I have begotten with my bride. And I give to you the responsibility of caring for my children, teaching my children, bringing them up in my fear. In that sense, they're gifts. They're also a heritage. We have to focus on that word heritage. That's the same word that applies to uh, Israel's inheritance of the land of Canaan. It's the same idea. And the people of God, of course, celebrated the idea of the land as being the Lord's inheritance given to them by his grace, by the conquest of the land under Joshua. And David, in fact, says, I think it's in Psalm 116, the Lord is my inheritance. So you have this idea of the inheritance, the Lord is my inheritance, the land is my inheritance, and part of that inheritance is the children whom God gives, the godly children that he gives to his people. They are also the Lord's inheritance. And 
They are a reward. This word, reward, it can mean, we've talked about the word before, it can mean wages or higher, but it can, it always, it doesn't always mean wages or higher, but it always carries the idea of giving something that corresponds to the work that went into seeking it. The Lord rewards us according to our work, according to our works. And this is the way children are seen too, godly children. The Lord rewards us according to our works here also in this regard. And so we see children as a blessing of the Lord, and we confess with the psalmist, happy is the man who has his quiver full of them, who has many children. Remember what Jacob said to Esau as he was returning from his uncle Laban, and Esau asked him, who are these? Jacob's answer was, behold, I and the children. How many children did he have at that point? Eleven or twelve children? Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. And in Second or First Chronicles 26, verses 4 and 5, we had a, a, another suggestion about this, another uh, perspective on this. David is appointing the divisions of the gatekeepers of the Levites who were to care for the temple. And in the course of that, he mentions in verses 4 and 5, a whole, uh, he first mentions a number of other people, the sons of uh, Meshelamiah and uh, the other, others as well, but he mentions in verses 4 and 5, the sons of Obed-Edom were Shemaiah the firstborn, Jehazabad the second, Joah the third, Sekar the fourth, Nathanel the fifth, Amiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, Peolthai the eighth, for God blessed him. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. And that's the one uh, person in this uh, list of people who were appointed as gatekeepers, of whom it said, the one who has the most sons, for the Lord blessed him. So that's the first thing. They are the Lord's children, whom he gives to us as gifts, as part of our inheritance, as a reward. And they, he says, are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Here you come back to that idea of the defense of the city. They're not there just for your defense, your, you as parents' defense. They are as arrows in the hand of a mighty man. They are like arrows you shoot out against the enemies of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like arrows you release to defend the city of God against those who hate it and seek to destroy it. You are making warriors for the generation to come. And they will carry on then your work of defending God's city. But they will also sit in the gates They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. And of course we know that the gate was the place of judgment, the place where the elders sat, 
to give counsel, to resolve problems, to deal with the, the uh, various matters that would arise uh, within and the city and among the people of the city and so on. Uh, we can get a, a very uh, vivid picture of this in the book of Job, chapter 29, verses 7 to 17. Job is talking about himself here in these verses, Job 29, verses 7 to 17. I want to read them all because Job is talking about what it means to be an elder or to be sit in the gate of the city here as a godly and wise man. When I went out to the gate by the city, when I took my seat in the open square, the young men saw me and hid, and the aged arose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and put their hand on their mouth. The voice of nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. He's talking, of course, about the respect that was shown to him as as one who was recognized as wise and godly, whose counsel and whose judgment was worth hearing. This is what Solomon is talking about, too, in uh, verse 5 of Psalm 127. They shall not be ashamed when they sit in the gate. But he goes on then. When the ear heard, then it blessed me. When the eye saw, then it approved me. Because I delivered the poor who cried out, the fatherless and the one who had no helper. The blessing of a perishing man came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, and I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and I searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. That's the blessing, again, of faithful children who take their place in the gate of the city, in the house of the Lord. That Solomon is talking about here. Now Calvin says about this psalm, Men, however much they may exceed in wisdom and virtue, and whatever may be the undertakings in which they engage, can affect nothing, unless insofar as God stretches forth his hand to them, or rather makes use of them as his instruments. And that, I think, is the basic lesson of this psalm. Trusting in the Lord, walking and working with him. He will build our house. He will guard our city. He will bless our labor according to his purpose. And we will, he will give to his beloved sleep. We will be able to say with David, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Those crowding cares and anxieties that characterized our labor, we will be able to set aside because we have committed all our cares to the Lord. Under whose guidance and under whose blessing our labor will not be in vain. May God bless his word for us.